0: This sermon, A Psalm of Repentance, was preached by Pastor Tom Wilkins on Sunday, July 23rd, 2023 at Sovereign Grace Church, Tucson. I will be preaching from God's Word this morning, Psalm 51. If I could have you turn there, and if I could have you stand with me, and we will read God's Word together. Psalm 51. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. Psalm 51. I will begin reading the prescript right before, verse 1. To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you. Teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. A new and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then... I will teach transgressor, transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. You may be seated. The Lord's Word. Let's pray together. Father constrain me. By the power of your Holy Spirit that you have graciously sent to us. Constrain me to your word. Constrain me to your Son. Help my thoughts always have your Son, Christ, in view. God, I pray for all of us as we hear your word. I pray that at the end of the message that its effect on us would be lasting and for some God willing eternal. Be merciful to any person present that is lost in darkness without you. Be gracious to your children that are present this morning as well and teach us your ways. Jesus, be magnified. Be lifted up. Receive all our worship. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Oh, I remember uh, an afternoon a number of years ago, I was trying to run calculator through my head as soon as that came out of my mouth, and that is not going to work well because I don't carry a calculator in my head. But I remember the afternoon. I was, I was nineteen. It's 1984, and it was in the month of August. And I was in my bedroom, one of my favorite places to be as a teenager. Um, I had huge headphones on, and I'm sure I'm listening to Toto. I only had like two albums back then, and it's just screaming in the headphones. And I I remember my mom stepping into the bedroom and I've never seen the look on her face before. And she came and I pulled off the headphones and she fell at the foot of my bed and said the doctor just called and it's confirmed your dad has cancer. And I can honestly say, using Derek's word as we talked this week about this message, that was the day the curtain was pulled back in my life in a very, very pronounced way. My world before the Lord was now ripped open. And I can safely say from that day forward, I was not the same man. And I can say this, for the next 9 to 11 months, The Lord began to just reveal me. Reveal me before people in my life. Reveal me certainly before himself. I desperately needed the Savior. Maybe I was saved already. What's your testimony like? I could tell you that day, I saw my need for him. And progressively for months saw my need for him. The night after dad died, during that time... Lisa and I had got back together. So my wife now, she's my high school sweetheart. We dated. I was a serial dater. One of the things being revealed during that time. And Lisa and I were finally back together that year. And she's my witness. The night after uh, dad died. What an amazing night. You know, it should have sent me to the depths of despair because I worshiped my dad. My dad was everything to me. It seemed something new had occurred. He was not everything to me anymore. And I remember that night at my girlfriend's house laying on the couch and just crying out to God for salvation, for mercy, for forgiveness. I knew that night, I was his. Well, what we have here in the psalm is David's world has been opened up. That curtain has been peeled back. Go to Second Samuel eleven and twelve, and you will read of the account of David and Bathsheba. And what we have here in Psalm fifty-one, well, it certainly includes a recount of what God is doing in David's but in David's heart, but it is a revealing. That David writes about and writes in a song about what God is doing in him as he cries out to God, Be gracious to me, oh God. Kurt, his life has been pulled back on that fateful afternoon on the rooftop of his palace. And for the next nine months plus, everything has changed for David. We're going to consider this psalm in two halves, verses 1 through 9 and verses 10 through 19. And we're going to consider this in two sections in particular. And I've called them in these points a radical repentance. That first section of 1 through 1 through 9 is a radical repentance and then we will look at a radical renewal as well, a radical renewal once we get to verse 10. But now, a radical repentance. David, in verse 1, cries out to God for mercy. We have that in the ESV, and it's even footnoted of, Be gracious to me, God. And we quickly realize that this repentance is not going to be simple. This, is, by the way, is not first a judgment on your or my pathetic repentance, or quick repentance, I any anytime we go to God with a sincere heart and we repent, the Lord hears that. Remember the thief on the cross joining the other thief on the cross hurling insults after insults on Christ and in a shocking brief moment realizes who is being crucified next to him, Jesus. He even talks back to the other guy they were both originally insulting Christ. He said, you and I, we are getting what we deserve. But the curtain had been turned back in this man's life. And he, in a brief, super brief moment, says, Jesus, remember me. When you are in paradise, remember me. But what we have here is a lengthy repentance. Repentance. David goes on at length and in depth and he seeks God's forgiveness and it certainly reveals this man and it teaches us. So there is a providential exposing of this servant of God, this king of God who Jesus shares the bloodline with. Jesus, the king, shares the bloodline with this king who in this moment has so grievously sinned against God. And now using again, Derek, if you say things to me, I'm going to continue to quote you. He puts on a clinic of what repentance could be like for us. And he goes on at length. God's pardon he calls out for. And he goes on at length. He's looking for a radical repentance You and I, at times, we've heard this before. Well, sin is sin. Almost in a way when we've heard a friend or a family member say, well, sin is sin. So, I mean, forgiveness is the same. Actually, the Scripture says something radically different, and we discover that. Sometimes we'll use that as even a just get over it. Sin is sin. But one sin is not simply the same as another. They vary at times in gravity and quantity, in both light and grievous consequences that follow. And the resulting damage at times is little, and in some cases seemingly almost irreparable and lifelong. If you don't believe me about the gravity of sin being different, let me peel back a little bit of my story before that A moment after high school, in junior high, Ricky Alcantara, my friend in El Paso, said, I should write a book about my experience in junior high. And actually, whenever I thought of this, I thought, no. (laughs) Well, bear with me just briefly. I have a mouth on me. If you don't believe me, ask her. Her. And for me, privately, I could be in traffic. Someone cuts me off and I could just blurt out like instantly, you dummy. That's sinful. There's some weight to it. But in junior high, there was this precious young lady, a girl, in seventh and in eighth grade that we knew at Eastwood Middle School. And her name was Shelly. And she was the merciless target of bullying and ridicule school wide. She had a couple of friends, and they well, she likely, out of desperation, clung to them. And I remember joining along with the rest. that really sounded like it was them. Wow, my sin is really that depraved. I'm going to say, oh yeah, I'm along with the crowd. If it was for no one else. But I remember, I remember looking at Shelly. She's walking past. We've all got our books. That's when we had books back then. Walking down the hallway. And before anybody could say anything, I'm blurred out to her. Smelly Shelly. Now, Is that enough to see the difference between you dummy and traffic and the destructive nature of my sin for this poor young girl's life, her whole life in middle school? There's a redemptive turnaround for Shelly. I remember later in high school, off at Eastwood, Shelly was there as well. And I remember the last time probably I ever saw Shelly it was probably my junior year at Eastwood. She was in Mrs. A's class after school, meaning she was in a Christian Bible study with a precious teacher who led a Bible study in her class. Shelly, a believer, me, needing a savior. There is gravity to what is occurring here because of the gravity of what's gone on in this man's life. His confession, his repentance has a weight. It has a depth because his sin has a weight and it has a depth. David's sin is grievous. Committing adultery with his friend, committing adultery with his friend's wife, Uriah's wife Bathsheba hatching a lengthy and detailed plan in an attempt to cover up Bathsheba's following pregnancy then plotting and arranging the murder of the husband to cover it then he takes the man's widow as his wife and the whole thing is kept secret for months his sins David's sins are many his sins are grievous he was trying to hide them Our sins are many. Our sins are grievous. And often we're trying to hide them. Verse 1. David appeals for mercy. But he appeals for mercy and gracious for God in a particular way. As you continue to read through this verse. He says, have mercy on me, God, according to your steadfast love. David runs to the nature of God that he knows has the power and ability that God can fix his love so deeply on a man it does not matter what he does. God will continue to love him. We know that in the gospel. In the good news of Christ, when Christ has set his affection and his love on you and on me, it can never be removed. David, hoping this is the case with God, appeals to God's forgiveness according to his loving kindness, his steadfast love. And then this very next phrase, according to his abundant mercy. Not just mercy, but abundant mercy. I love what the commentators so help on this one is it is a plurality of mercies. David's list of sins is long that God has revealed to him. And it has been building month after month after month. Not just the length of sins in this story that began that afternoon, but continued on throughout the year before Bathsheba gives birth. David knows that a record of each of his sins has been recorded. We know that from the very next one. Blot out my transgressions. My sins are numerous. There's a record of every one of them. Lord, please forgive me at length from your innumerable mercies that address my innumerable sins. Listen to how C.H. Spurgeon describes this as he speaks in the voice of David. My revolts, my excesses are all recorded against me. But Lord, erase the lines. Draw thy pen through the register, obliterate the record. Though now it seems engraven in the rock forever, many strokes of thy mercy may be needed to cut out the deep inscription. But then thou hast a multitude of mercies, and therefore I beseech thee, erase my sins. My sins engraved in the rock, many strokes of thy mercy may be needed to cut them out. They are deep, Lord. For David, it could sound like this. I have slept with my friend's wife. Strike it, Lord. I have killed one of my most trusted and mighty men. Swing away. Let your mercies fly. I have lied about what happened to him. I have lied about what happened to her. I have conspired with others demanding their loyal silence to cover it up. I have kept it from my dearest friend, Nathan. I have taken another man's life, wife as my own. The list goes on and on and on. Draw thy pen through the register strike through every single one of them have you been waiting to repent You've kept it secret for months. Have you been waiting? The list mounts and continues to grow. Flee now to Christ and repentance. Even now in the message, go to Him and repent before Him and immediately discover that He will take the pen. By the way that's dipped in his blood and strike through every single sin you have committed. Go now to Christ and repent. Verse 2, David cries out, Wash me thoroughly. So according to your abundant mercy, your multiple mercies, David now appeals to a multiple washing as well. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Another use of that word, It's like washing a garment, but it's plunging the garment again and again and again, because the stain is so deep. He cannot shout it out. God must wash it out. Washing after washing after washing is on this man's mind. Oh, let me let me run to the end just for you, just a moment. I love what Hebrew says that Jesus shed His blood one time. There is one washing available, not multiple. One washing available that will cover it all, and that is the washing of the blood of Christ. Go to Jesus. But in David's mind, one washing will not be sufficient. Wash me thoroughly, Lord. And then he gets to verse 3. I know my transgressions. Meaning, I acknowledge my sin. David acknowledges that he has sinned. He, in that sense, admits to them straight up. He owns his sin. There is no, she should not have been bathing in the afternoon next door. There is no, well, I was lonely. You know, I have needs, Lord. There was no, the Amorites killed Uriah. No, he owned his sin. And he did not deny the fact that they were his. John Calvin points out something, though. That's interesting about when Nathan comes to David and at length reveals David's sin. When Nathan stops speaking, David immediately responds, I have sinned. I have sinned against the Lord. He doesn't just say to his friend, you're right, Nathan, I have really blown it. And I've blown it at length. No, his statement is what we now have very, very near to. I own my sin, but I realize my sin is against God. I commend you again to go to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12 and read it together. And you will see what is weighing on David's heart when he gets to this I own it. And then he makes a statement. It's ever before me and it's against you and you alone have I sinned. What now begins to crash down on David is sin after sin. They are ever before him. He cannot forget what he has done. They're ever before him. And they are forever against God and God alone. David's repentance reveals that his sins are ever before him. And the following consequences taught him that he has sinned ultimately against God and God alone. The nature of what happens to David, the judgment that comes upon King David following his sin with Bathsheba, teaches him, your sin? Oh yes, it was against Uriah. Your sin? Oh yes, it was against Bathsheba. Your sin? Oh yes, it was against the nation. It was against me. Is what the consequences will finally teach him. David, for the rest of his life, will suffer deeply for that one thing that we now know is many things. The consequences will dog him. So we hear him continuing to cry out to the Lord. We have here in verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Again, that phrase that we have up in verse verse 2, wash me. We have it again here in 7. It is this calling out to the Lord. Let my brokenness lead me to rejoice. We have here in verse 8, let my joy and gladness, let my bones that you have broken rejoice. Something has happened As God reveals the numerous consequences on this man for his sin, it's a something from inside him through the brokenness that God had brought him to cry out that God would purge them, remove them completely from him, taught him how bad it was, showed him how deep it was, showed him how impossible it was for him to go himself later and to worship his way through this. He does not have the righteousness on his own to get away from this. God, you must de-sin me. That word purge, de-sin. That word wash, make it white as snow. Only God has the ability to do this. And God teaches him that through the brokenness that we finally hear in verse 8. David could have said it different in 8. Lord, let me hear joy and gladness. All this that's happening to me, I'm just a broken man. David wisely, and by I would say by the power of the Spirit, sees something that you and I need to see. The wreckage due to sin is God's doing, ultimately. Oh, you and I, we have consequences because of our sin. But the brokenness that comes due to these things has been at the hand of God that God would bring chastisement to you and I, that God would bring correction to you and I, that we would feel the depth of our sin, the wrongness of how heavy and grievous our sins are, that we would remember the look on Shelley's face when I said what I said. I remember it so that I remember how deep the sin was, so that I would see my great need for deep forgiveness that's only found in God. Then we get to verse 9. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. The all-seeing eye of God could see it all, and David, David in that sense, could feel the open, clear exposure to God's sight. Lord, turn away. From me. Luke 5 8 tells a similar story of Peter when Jesus in the boat reveals his holiness. Peter cries out. He fell down at Jesus' knees in Luke 5 8, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Our shame is completely exposed by God. You and I are not committing things in secret that are not seen. They are all seen and they're wide open in God's vision. Do you know that? David's life teaches it so. But hear, hear this. In David's radical repentance he calls out for these things that only God can provide and finally would provide through his son, Jesus. Hebrews eleven thirteen can describe David when we hear in that passage, have you, David, having seen them, not saying David, but saying this in Hebrews eleven thirteen, having seen them and greeted them from afar, David begins to taste of something that is coming one day, one day and not too long in the future could only long for this in salvation that would finally come in the appearing of Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews is revealing that you and I now experience what David is longing for in this moment. Lord forgive me. Forgive all my sin. Hide all my sin from you. Turn your face away from me and we find out that is only finally found in Christ the final and lasting abundant mercies, the blotting out of David's sins, the cleansing, the purging, the washing, the multiple washings. It would finally make him whiter than snow, the joy and the gladness, the removal of his shame. It will all be finally made possible as Jesus, God's very son, will come to David as his substitute. All of them all of David's sin will be placed on the body of Jesus. And Jesus receives a wrath that he deserved. You and I, all our sin, are they many? All placed on Christ at the cross. All of them on Jesus as he bears all our sin. And then Jesus, instead of us being finally broken, Jesus is broken for us. For the weight of my sin is as if you have broken all the bones in my body. Jesus says, take this bread. This is my body broken for you. Oh, you and I definitely need a breaking We're going to see that there is a real broken and contrite heart that's coming for David. But it's only because of what we begin to see. We begin to see that there is a Savior. There is a Lamb that will finally be broken for David. Jesus will shed his own blood for David's guilt and our guilt. Everything that David needs in his repentance and that we need in our repentance flow from the cross of Christ. Every blow of the hammer, as it were, if we were, quote, Spurgeon again, every blow of the hammer that is needed to remove the deeply ingrained list of our sins was replaced with every blow of the hammer that drives the nails into our Savior's hands and feet. How in the world are our sins going to be removed? They're going to be removed and placed on Jesus. You and I have considered this radical repentance that we hear David go on and on about. As God grants repentance and extends His grace, we discover something else is desperately needed. You and I certainly need forgiveness. David is calling out at length for forgiveness. Do we not need our sins blotted out from the sight of God? Yes, we do. But there's more that we need. God's power does grant forgiveness. But the great joy and the great hope is that power of God also changes everything about us. David needed more than forgiveness. He knew that he needed to be transformed. He needs a recreation to occur. And so we have now in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Verse 12 will say, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. There is a recreation that is needed. Something new has to occur in us. Or we will just keep going right back. Blindless. Blinding sin awaits us. So David knows this about himself. One of the good things that we know about this king. That the scriptures tells us. Is he had a heart after God. And he has sinned grievously against God. So he knows. He knows the very reason within Why it was a good time of day to be out that day. He knew that was still remaining. So he needed a radical deeper work. And so he calls out for it. Lord create in me a clean heart. This is not just. Well because I know that my heart is tempted towards sin only. It means there is something radically wrong with my heart. I'm given and enslaved to this over and over and over again. And the last many months are proof of it. Lord, change me forever. Lord, if you've peeled back that curtain of my life, let it peel back and reveal my heart is truly black. In fact, we know from Ephesians chapter 2, it's dead. It needs a heart transplant. Maybe another way to illustrate this is that old TV show, The Extreme Home Makeover. Remember, they would go in, they would go into the same structure, same foundation. They would gut the place and they would renovate the place. But what we have here in the text, this is not a renovation of an old structure. This must be a new creation that David is calling out for. This is a tearing down completely and rebuilding of something completely new. This is Jeremiah reaching in, the Lord reaching in and taking our heart of stone and removing it and giving us A heart of flesh, giving us a new heart. It is a breaking down by God, but it is also a making new. And the old thing that needed to be replaced was David's heart, and he knew it. But he didn't stay with his heart, he needs a new heart. But he knows his spirit, something has gone wrong in his spirit towards the Lord. And so he calls out that not only do I need a new heart, I need my spirit renewed before you as well, Lord. Spurgeon uses this phrase. David's sin has so destroyed him that the creator must be called on again. Sin has so destroyed him, the creator must be called on again. Repentance that longs for forgiveness, yes, but also repentance that longs for change. James Montgomery Boyce, thank you Derek, again, gave me a great quote talking about David needed pardon, but he needed purity that came from God. And David knew for me to be pure before the Lord, I need a new heart and my spirit needs to be renewed. We need both. When we get to verse 11, it seems that in the middle of this, create and renew, and then verse 12, restore, this seems as an odd insert. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. What David is revealing is a true, a possible occurrence in the Old Testament. That God would come and, Give his spirit to a man. And in that man's sinfulness, the Lord could come and would remove his spirit from him. One of the scariest texts in all of the scriptures is the Lord removed his spirit from Saul and he knew it not. David knows this is a possibility. But you and I know something radically hopeful the Old Testament, this is a possibility. David would cry out, Lord, stay with me. Don't let me go. And you and I would cry out the same thing, would we not? It's almost as if you and I could get to this and say, Lord, please, I know this is bad. I know I want and I need your forgiveness. But Lord, don't leave me. Stay with me. The New Testament hope is he will never leave you. Something radically has changed. Jesus making a statement and now we begin to taste of a little bit of that truth that is an amazing deep truth. It is better that I leave because I will send my spirit to be with you and we will discover the truth of the gospel is God's Holy Spirit present in the believer's life is an amazing miracle and is an eternal reality. He will never remove his spirit from you. How far have you fallen from God in repentance and in His forgiveness? He gives you His Spirit to never be removed. That's better. He will not cast us away from His presence. God will not take His Holy Spirit from us. I grew up in a staunch legalistic church. My view of God She was constantly frowning on me, just waiting for me to blow it again. I know that sounds weird for me to say, because, by the way, I'm going to blow it again and again and again. So God's countenance towards me is always fixed and against me. But the joy is his smile and approval and love and pleasure is fixed on me, fixed on you in the gospel. What David is crying out is now a New Testament promise for you. God's smile, God's joy, God's happiness permanently affixed on you. Has sin so gripped you that your original love for God has now turned to questioning Him and doubting Him? Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. It's possible that you and I, in our repentance, we're crying out for God to forgive, but we have forgot of that wonderful day. The day after, I guess I could say, after dad died that he saved me and a joy was now laid upon me I never had before But the scriptures do reveal that there are moments after sin that we, we in our minds we cannot see God's favor we cannot see a joy that he still has on us and David is experiencing this certainly he loved the Lord he loved God's forgiveness and yet Somehow over this year, somehow after all of the sin, that joy in God had been stripped away from him. So he says, Lord, restore that joy to me. In your repentance, call out for God to restore joy. Oh, remember those three words in verses 10 and 12. Create, renew, and restore Give us a new heart. Renew our spirit. But Lord also, restore joy to us. The extraordinary nature of David's repentance matched the extraordinary nature of his sin. And he understood that he desperately needed the extraordinary work of transformation that only God had the power to perform. Now read with me verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. Now this seems like a strange change. A man at the depth of despair over sin desperately needing the savior. At the end it should only be, "Lord, thank you for saving me. Lord, thank you for changing me." And David will not stop there with this change. David would be so moved by the joy of his salvation returning that he knows, he knows the moment's going to come. The moment is going to come that he will not be able to stay silent. In fact, his will is so inclined now to say, "I will not be silent. I will teach others" I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Lord, in a sense, this is what he's saying. When they hear of this marvelous work that you have done for me, it will lead them to your salvation. When they see how merciful you have been to me, that at the very depths of all of my sin, the deep engraved line after line after line being blotted out in your salvation, they will run to you in forgiveness. Then I'll teach your transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. And by the way, the way David words this is he's actually speaking of something that he knows about God's nature. God is still on the move to save sinners. This is God's man over God's people and he has completely blown it. God in that moment could have said, enough of this. People are sinning against me. And now even my man is standing against me. Enough of this. And David knows the heart of God is just waiting to preach the good news to sinners again. Sinners will return to you. And what a great hope that we have in the good news of Christ. That sinners are now brought to God. God will come near sinners to save sinners. God will go as far as he will to that sinner that needs to be pardoned, and he will pardon them. Sinners will be saved. When a man is saved, he will not sit quiet. He will tell others. How will they believe if they have not heard? Well, David is saying, well, then I'm going to speak aloud about your great salvation. Spurgeon makes this statement. A great sinner, pardoned, makes a great singer. (laughs) I love it. So look, if if a a 19th century um, Baptist preacher is encouraging us to sing, that's pretty impressive. We could just sit quietly and believe in all of the being called by God and all of the reformed beauty of the doctrines, of the beautiful doctrines that we believe. But Spurgeon is saying something true about what we have in the very next thing. Listen to how verse 14 is written. It is so bad, the sin is so bad, David knows this. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O Lord. David's sins are numerous, but at the core of them are two in particular adultery and murder. Adultery and murder that call for a man's blood according to the law. David literally is saying, God, you have every right to spread my blood out on the ground right now. Bring the executioner to me, drain it all out. You have the right to destroy me completely. And so he calls out to the Lord and says, Deliver me from blood guiltness, O Lord, O God of my salvation. He knows there is no one who can save him except for God. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Meaning David literally is saying, Lord, you have every right to destroy me, but don't destroy me. Don't spill my blood and I will sing of that. That is a strange song for sure. God should kill me. I don't even know how to write the melody because I'm not a musician. God should kill me, but he hasn't. He has sent his son to die for me. Let's sing. And David says that. Oh, you, you guys know that David loves to sing. It is certain that David is saying, I'm going to go back to doing what I love. But it's more than that. he's saying, The depth of my sin is so deep, but the depth of your mercy and your grace in my pardon is so good. It is so big. It is so immense. I cannot stay quiet. And he goes on, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. I will open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. There is a real noisy celebration that David is going to lead. I I could imagine that if, honestly, if David, King David, walked in the building, one, we would all freak out that he actually is alive and in the building. But if he came in, this is what he would say. He would say, sing. Do you not know how bad the sin is? And do you not know how precious the blood of Christ is? Sing. Sing. This is what David is saying. Open your mouth. Don't stay quiet about this. By the way, you and I need to hear one another sing. I love my wife's voice when she sings, reminding me out loud how good the Savior is, how merciful he has been to me. Oh, if I just for a moment begin to recount the numbers of sins I've committed against God and the numbers of all of them and more that I'm not even aware of, and he has saved. Oh, how I need to hear the saints around me sing. I need to hear Isaiah's untrained male voice singing those hymns to me in the back of my head. I need to hear that. I need to stand next to Tim and almost get knocked out with his hands raised. As Tim marvels at the Savior who has saved him. I need to hear that. I need Rick. I need, I need Brett. What's your name? Derek. Whatever we're calling you today. We're going to just switch your names. We need you guys to sing to us. But sing about this. And verses 16 and 17 remind us. All our religious activity, all of our community group attending, all of our prayers, all of these things, is not what the Lord delights in if our hearts are not broken before Him. Oh, there's a beautiful direction this is taking us now to help us understand, well, what will be our nature in worship? Here, verses 16 and 17 For you, Lord, do not delight in sacrifice. I'm thinking, the Lord is the one that set that up. Lord, you don't delight in that, or I would give it. I'll bet if there was anyone who knew how to walk through the sacrifice, it was David. And you, you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, verse 17, are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. God, you are not despised by these things. I mean, God doesn't despise those things. The Lord delights in a broken, contrite heart. That doesn't mean a quiet, somber heart. That's not the explanation of the text. It means in our singing, in that noisy celebration, what the Lord is hearing and makes it through the gates of heaven, if we could describe it that way. And they get to his ears, if we could say that. It's a heart that says, Lord, I so need you. My sins are great. And I have you because your Savior has been so great. You have come to me in mercy now help me repent again, Lord. Oh, the Lord delights in that. In fact, he'll even go on to say that he delights in the sacrifices and the burnt offerings again. But hear how he states it in verse 18 and 19. Do good to Zion in your pleasure. Be good to your church, Lord. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, the burnt offerings, whole offerings, the bulls will be offered on your altar. When the people of God, when the church of God point to the Savior who was our sacrifice and they say, I need him. He's delighted. When we confess our sins and the depth of those sins before the Lord, we call out to the mercy of God that only he can do. He loves a broken And contrite heart. I think a better way for me to say this is he only delights in what he can do. You and I cannot make this right before the Lord. But sinners are forgiven by him, sinners are given a new life from God. We are moved from sinners to sons and daughters who bring him much delight. This is only something God can do, and he delights in it. How are you and I going to have a broken and contrite heart? Verse 17 is not possible without verse 8. Because the Lord is the one who breaks us. The Lord is the one who humbles us. The Lord is the one who makes us contrite before him. This is not just stepping on us and just shoving us down. It's humbling us. The world we can look up and say, Lord, you have done this. You are the one who has come and has made me broken before you, who has made me humble before you. God, you delight in only what you can do. Now, for you and I, we must remember, this is only found at the cross. God does what he does in making humble, broken, contrite hearts before him. By leading us and helping us see and us turning in faith and believing Christ is the only way to God. How are you and I going to be pleasing before him? Where is our brokenness? Where is our humility going to take us? It's going to take us to Christ that says you are the one who can save. You are the only way I can be saved. So for you and for you alone, I put my faith in. Now, if I could have the band come up. We have set you up by already singing the song, unless you guys changed it. You changed the song. So we're going to trust that we're not going to set you up because your pastor, our lead pastor, has changed the song. So hold on, where's my pen? I'm scratching it in my notes. Remember, we sang earlier Happy Day, but well, we're not going to sing that now. <laughs> Oh, but we are going to be happy. That's for sure, right? Why are we happy? Because the hammer swung and it has blotted it all out. We will sing of God's great grace and mercy. The very grace and mercy that have been abundantly given the record that has been canceled. We have been thoroughly washed. And now in God's eyes, a crimson color now has a view before him as white as snow. Our blood covering our, I'm sorry, Christ's blood covering our sins. Our repentance granted a new heart given So let's sing, but let's sing. Broken, contrite, and happy.